Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy. The Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Happy Regional Week. Happy Regional Week. Happy We Shouldn't Be Here, but Who Cares Week. Not, not Gravy, though. Not, it's not Gravy Week. Cause... We <laughs> gravy Week's in, in, in November. That's what you guess for winning the uh, Battle for Atlantis. That's what we get for beating Boston College. <laughs> This is this is a week for uh, beating the soon to be overrated but currently properly rated Gonzaga Bulldogs. Yeah, you know I the Zags are interesting. I feel I'm like, terrified of the Zags. Oh, so am I. <laughs> so am I. I what I found though is like I've never been one to be overly complimentary of them, um, but I will admit the last two years I feel like they've actually earned it. Um, you know, I, I definitely felt that the uh, the year they got that one seed was completely just like undeserved, and I felt like in general, like you know, the college basketball. I mean, college basketball media is similar to I'd say it's less similar to college football media than it is to NFL media in that it just like it loves to grasp on to tired, hackneyed narratives, and like for some reason, all the administrators and all the media and most of the fans and everyone who's on the tournament committee seemed, seemed to buy a narrative about Zaga for a long time that wasn't necessarily true. Um, and I think the last two years, however, um, that narrative's actually come to fruition, and now we're kind of seeing, you know, I think people are seeing with Syracuse and Gonzaga, this is the result of what happens when, you know, you, you see teams maybe a little bit lower than they should have been seated, and again, like... There's also nothing to apologize for. Like, Gonzaga's done plenty to get where they are, and so have we. Um, We've done the same thing as several two-seeds and then many more two-seeds to come. And I I think that, you know, this provides an interesting... It provides an interesting study of narrative, and and I hate that it's even, you know, kind of part of the conversation this week, but I think think whoever wins, it's going to be a very, very interesting case to see how they're viewed versus the expectations of how they should be viewed. Yeah, it's interesting. I actually don't even find an issue with the two seedings. I think um, before the tournament field was actually put out, you know, both of us were pretty open about, you know, Syracuse doesn't make it. We understand. Now, that kind of went out the window and we saw some of the other teams that did make it, like Michigan and Tulsa, which I thought, and Vanderbilt, which I thought were all lesser teams. Um, and then Gonzaga, uh, obviously they won the uh, WCC. They probably wouldn't have been in otherwise. Um, but I, I just find it really frustrating. I totally get, um, as someone who writes on the internet, I totally get driving home as much as you can for a day or two about snubs and overseeding and underseeding and whatnot. But man, we're in the Sweet 16 now. Can we just like get over who got in the tournament? Because both these teams have done what they needed to do. And obviously Sean finessed this incredibly well with his open letter, better than any of us could. But like, I think after the first weekend, or even after the first game, that why are we still talking about who got in the tournament? Like, 
that if, if Syracuse really didn't belong to be here or belong uh, in the tournament or Gonzaga for that reason, for that, uh, you know, they lost to St. Mary's a bunch. Everyone was saying, oh, the Bulldogs are, this is their worst team in a long time. You know, who cares at this point? They both won two games. Let's get on with, with the actual matchups at hand. And it just seems like, I think a lot of it's because Syracuse is, you know, quote unquote, unlikable to a lot of outside people um, and whatever else. Like, I, I just think people are, can't let go of it. And it's weird because I've seen comparisons to last year's UCLA team, and I totally get them. I just don't remember people getting this worked up about UCLA to a, a weekend into the tournament. Like, I think people by, by the Swiss team were like, okay, well, UCLA is hot and they're very talented and they've won the games they need to win. And that just does not seem to be the prevailing notion with Syracuse uh, on a national level. Yeah, and, you know, I think it's good you bring up UCLA because I was actually going to go there myself. Um, residing in the general area of UCLA and, and its fan base and the radio markets that might talk about it and the media that might talk about it in general, um, local fans elated that they got there. Um, radio elated they got there. Um, yeah, the, the, the conversation, I remember the national conversation too. Everything just shifted away from like, okay, you know, you beat, what, and they did the same thing we did, right? They beat a seven and a, and a 15. Um, like that narrative vanished and, and its place was, let's see if UCLA, let's see how dangerous UCLA is. Let's see if they can beat Gonzaga. Um, to me, I, I just... I think this is a product of a lot of the NCAA stuff. I think the NCAA stuff gave people who were long waiting to pile onto Syracuse, um, you know, uh, some easy talking points and excuses, and those continue today. Um, I I think that some of its bitterness on on the part of media, whether it's they wanted to go to Syracuse or they can't stand being surrounded by people who went to Syracuse, um, I think that Beheim's become an institution um, even outside of, of how we consider him. And I think people at, at some point or another, you just hate institutions and, you know, that goes for any dynasty that goes for any long successful franchise, like goes any long successful college team. And I think, um, you know, it's in some ways, and Sean said it in today's post, like it's, it's kind of a compliment, like where at this point we've, we've reached a level where even casual folks can, can weigh in and, and dislike us. And you know what? I, I think the only way to deal with it is to embrace it. I just, I hope that we can continue to do so because it's getting funnier and funnier to see America get so just damn angry about our inclusion in this thing when, again, we're, we're far from the worst. I mean, RPI number might have said one thing, but we're far from the worst at large team to ever be in this field. And we're far from the worst at large team uh, to ever go a couple rounds through. Yeah, it's really funny. And I actually looked up UCLA. They they were the team that beat SMU. They were an 11, SMU was a 6. And they had that weird, uh, was it a goaltending that shouldn't have been a goaltending or something on SMU at the last on the last play? Oh, yeah. And then they beat UAB, who had to just upset Iowa, Iowa State. State, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> because Iowa State always, except for this year, of course, um, so it's actually kind of similar. They blew out uh, UAB. They snuck by SMU by a point. So whereas Syracuse actually has, uh, you know, one of the best margins of victory in the tournament so far because they've just they're playing incredibly well. Um, but yeah, I it actually reminds me of a thing I wrote for the site. Um, the whole disrespect thing, and I hate using disrespect because we make fun of Clemson for it so much. <laughs> um, but the whole that this whole thing going back to 2012, which if you remember the tournament came basically a week after Ford, Pat Forty wrote his, like, 
No actual news, but we're going to throw this out there. Piece on Syracuse players might have smoked weed once uh, thing, which ended up being a part of the uh, the notice of allegations and whatnot. But there really wasn't any substance to his piece. Um, so that turned Syracuse into like a villainous program, except they were a one seed that year. And I figured there was this total hit piece written about how everyone should root against Syracuse. And I wrote this big thing about, you know, if Syracuse has demons, like every other team that's still in the tournament has players who have been arrested, who have coaches who have done certain things. So it's not that Syracuse is some like angelic program. I think we've all, we all admit, even though the NCAA stuff has been blown out of proportions, you know, there were things committed. Like Syracuse wasn't totally innocent. But man, like there is no totally innocent program. I don't care who you are. You can bring up stories for any program. John Wooden was considered like a rampant cheater. Now, uh, if you just looked into it a little bit, there was the Tori Medetti stuff with Coach Chase. Like, even if stuff doesn't actually uh, end up being followed through to NCAA bans and postseason stuff, like there's no clean program that's successful. I'm sorry, uh, and it just it's still lingering around because of last year's ban and because. Bayheim is pretty, uh, you know, cold to people on the outside, and they don't understand him or get him. Um, so it's tired. I, I actually I appreciate kind of the leaning into it at this point because I think we we have in the past been a little sensitive about it, and now we're just like, okay, well, if this is what we are, this is what we are, and and we'll just play this up, and you know, hopefully we can ride the wave as long as we can. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, like I didn't grow up a Yankees fan. I didn't grow up a fan of the Lakers or any team like that. Um, so I, I was much more used to being a fan of a team that that when they were successful, you enjoyed it and you were surprised by it and all that. So, so being a Syracuse fan is only natural there. Um, so it, it's a new feeling for me, and I would I would bet there's a lot of that. I mean, I don't have the exact numbers. I'm sure there's plenty of Yankees fans that also root for Syracuse, but I would bet that there's a lot of fans of Syracuse who, if they do root for pro sports at all, they might not be the most successful teams in the world. Um, and, you know, it's... It's weird if you haven't embraced it, and like for me, I haven't. If only because like it took me a long time to embrace it with Syracuse, and that long time would lead up until about now. Um, just because you know all my other sports rooting interests, it, it just it never was something I was I was part of, and and, and never really understood the, the draw of it. But now I actually do. I, I, I get it. You know, there's a there's a driving force. There's a motivation. Um, Granted, Syracuse gave people reason to doubt them, and I think that's one thing that, um, you know, if Duke gives reason to doubt, it's like you give them you give reason to doubt Duke as a as a number one seed or as a national title contender that year. It doesn't mean you doubt their program as a whole. Um, same with Kansas, same with Kentucky, same with North Carolina, and I think that that's maybe where the distinction lies between those programs and ours, and 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 those programs' ability to. Um, embrace some hatred and dislike especially on like the duke and unc um and kentucky fronts um and, and just embrace that embrace the fact that that you know with success comes scrutiny and people overly dissecting minutiae and all this other nonsense and and i guess you know for fans at the end of the day yes syracuse is a huge fan base and a very popular team and all that but Syracuse is still, you know, a fairly small private school in a small city, um, and that, that's that's never going to change, no matter how many championships we do or don't win. Um, and so, for its fans and its alums and, and students and everything else, it does become. I think it's tougher than most of those other schools to understand 
how the microscope gets, you know, just so centered on every little thing that happens to us when all the all the other big programs, that's been the case for a long time. Yeah, and I'm, I'm kind of the same way. I'm a, you know, a Mets fan, and I work for the Green Bay Packers, who are very successful, but don't really have, like, the villain tag for one reason or another. Uh, so, yeah, a little different, but whatever. I'm, I'm over it. I'm tired of, like, you just, at some point you realize, no matter what you say or what's true or whatever, your your tweets at Doug Gottlieb are never going to have Doug Gottlieb uh, admitting that he's, you know, blowing up something that's not there. Like, it's just not going to happen. People have established what they feel, um, and it might be right or wrong, but it's there's just so so little uh, way to actually change the narrative. So maybe just ignoring it and going to actually win the basketball games, which uh, are played in this tournament, um, is the best way to go about things. And I think SU's done a nice job of that. They've won both games by a lot of points. I would agree. And I also think, you know, this is the right team um, they kind of embrace that too. I mean, we haven't, I mean, players rarely talk a ton about, you know, how much media they read and, and how much they, they listen to their critics and things like that. But, um, you know, a quick survey of, of these players' Twitter feed showed this isn't really a team that's sitting around, uh, you know, retweeting everything and, and, and trying to, to get a read on how people consider them and all that. Um, and and so I think that the, the buzz that does rise up, I think Bayheim is is a lot smarter than people give him credit for outside of the program and outside of the fan base. And that is like he knows how to motivate players. He knows. I mean, yes, sometimes there's moments where you might say, eh, yeah, maybe you shouldn't have run over Tyler Roberson with a truck. But at the same time, that same Tyler Roberson was a big reason why we beat Dayton, and he put in another solid performance. Um, against Middle Tennessee State, I have a feeling that if Beheim does give, Beheim does share anything in the media, um, I, I think he's he's very calculated with it, and I think he's very smart about you know what he knows is going to motivate this team because this team again they're, they're smart, they're mature. I mean, even the younger players, I feel like they're they can function more mature beyond their years, and 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 have already showed a certain amount of uh, I guess gravitas um, in, in this tournament through two games. Um, than especially the freshmen would normally be able to, given the circumstances. Right, and, and of course, Beheim a couple weeks ago got absolutely killed by people for his comments about Roberson. And I do agree they were a little harsh, but it's one of those, thing, those things where you have to understand, like, hey, Roberson knows who he plays for, so uh, I don't think he was as negatively impacted about from it as like everyone else tried to make it out. And then, of course, after the uh, amazing game he had in Staten, Beheim, uh, if you watch that locker room video, had some awesome things to say about him, and I think they gave him the game ball, and the whole team like group hugged him, and naturally that was not part of any kind of narrative. No one, no one recognized that because why? You know why would they? Yeah, exactly. Why would they? I mean, then we're not going to dive down this rabbit hole because I mean it's something important, but it's not something that we typically cover on the podcast, and that is like. Media narratives exist for a reason, and the media never wants to admit it's wrong. So, and again, we're members of the media in many ways. Um, media never wants to admit it's wrong, so whether it's something, you know, stupid and inconsequential, like, you know, whether or not Syracuse deserves respect or whether it's something more serious, like the many, many issues affecting this country and the world, you know, the media establishes narrative. It's going to ride it out um, un- until something very, very blatant happens to prove it wrong. I mean, you saw it, again, redirecting back to sports, 
you saw the the shift back in um, 2013 when Syracuse in the Final Four, um, and you know there were there was a strict narrative about about Bayheim un- underperforming since 2003, and and about you know not getting past the Sweet 16, and and not doing this and not doing that, and not getting back to the Final Four, and then that team and that defense put on a tour de force for four you know straight games to get out of the region, and then suddenly the, the narrative shifted on a dime to. Jim Beheim still got it. You know, this this program is, is as good as it's ever been. It's a well-oiled machine. So, I mean, I'm not going to say, you know, don't be positive. Don't try to find positivity until you until we see this big sea change because it might not happen. Um, but just to point out, like, the media is, is very, very slow to move, and you might have to wait a while. But the, the payoff is there, and to be honest, I don't really think there is, for me anyway, a payoff of just hearing the things that, you know, Dan, you and I and, and so many other people listening and so many other people reading the blog already knew. Right. I think it happens when Hopkins takes over because Hopkins is definitely more pleasant than Bayheim. Um And then, of course, if Hopkins doesn't have wild success, it will immediately change on him. So look out for that in like 2018 or whenever. That'll be fun. Well, I mean, to be honest, like I was surprised that there wasn't more of a national uh, fervor around how Syracuse played under Hopkins. Um, and, and again, I think we, we largely defended him here. Um, I had my, I had not doubts about him. I just had concerns about how things went, but you know what, given the circumstances, it is what it is. Obviously we made the tournament. Obviously we made the sweet 16, you know, we'll talk about gravy when it's over, but if God forbid, this is the end. Um, I, I'd say that, that Hopkins, being there for nine games and going four and five did absolutely nothing to, to change the trajectory in a negative way of the Syracuse team. Um, I don't think any of those losses, maybe the St. John's one, but even then probably not. I don't think any of those losses really prevented Syracuse from, from reaching its full potential. And I think the only thing that can more often than not stop Syracuse in this zone, especially when it's humming the way it is, uh, from reaching its full potential is itself. Right. Oh, and, and speaking of the Hopkins thing, one narrative that we actually didn't touch on because it was like right in the the fervor of uh, Selection Sunday, I think, is there was a, I forget what writer from the Washington Post who literally, uh, I'm pretty sure just made up a quote from Beheim, and Beheim's quote was something along the lines of uh, Hopkins was basically put in an un, unwinnable situation, and one he literally says, one day he's going to be a better coach than me, but this wasn't the time, and the Washington Post writer wrote that Beheim. Uh, basically said that Hopkins was a bad coach, which just was so far from what was like, it wasn't even out of context. It was just not what he said. So uh, yeah, it's been a fun couple weeks here in Syracuse land. Uh, and hopefully we can make it to the final four. So we get even more uh, revisionist history and uh, edited quotes and everything else. That'll be, I'm just, I'm, I'm riding the wave right now. And uh, I usually hate like the overly sensitive, uh, stuff like this that we see from like the New England Patriots and other fan bases, but I'm I'm all I'm all with it right now. We're we're going for it. Yeah, we're going for it. And you know, we're we're meeting it aggressively, and the best way to do that is is, is winning basketball games. And again, hopefully, we can do more of that. Um, you know, I, I kind of started in at the beginning of the show talking about how I sometimes didn't always give Gonzaga proper credit, and I think that I can revise that now after the last two years. Um, but Dan, what, have you noticed that Gonzaga fans seem awfully confident? I mean, is some, is some of that 
based on the national media being awfully confident in the Zags, or is it is it that the Bulldogs fans are just very, very, very kind of comfortable in who they are and what they do, and and they're it seems like they've fallen right back into it, and some maybe in a good way. Um, this Cinderella role that they once inhabited back in the day, um, and they actually feel better about that than maybe being you know a favorite team week in and week out. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know any Zags fans, to be honest. Uh, I don't think they have like a really wide-ranging fan base, but obviously they're pretty passionate, and they should be. They've had a really awesome team, like small conference team for a while here. But um, I, I think probably most of it, if I had to guess, stems out of them beating the hell out of Utah, uh, a number three seed, um, and, and they beat Seton Hall pretty comfortably, although that game would have been closer if Seton Hall wasn't based. They, Seton Hall shot like 30% from the free throw line. Uh, which was one of the, and I'm a Syracuse fan. If anyone doesn't know that, listening to a Syracuse podcast, um, Seton Hall had a worst, a worst free throw performance than I've ever seen Syracuse have. Um, so they won both teams very comfortably. They blew it a three seed. So I, I can't really, uh, I can't really knock them for being positive. It is a little weird because, like we said, Gonzaga, and like admittedly, this isn't a knock, was not going to be in the tournament if they didn't uh, win their tournament, um, their conference tournament, um, but. I mean, you can throw that all out now. They're playing really good basketball. They have two, I think, bona fide star players. Um, their weaknesses, their guard play, really hasn't been an issue for them the last couple of games. Um, and, and again, when you have Wilcher and Sabonis, it masks a lot of uh, issues. Your darts can just be kind of reliable. And, and I know they have uh, the one guy on their team who was their conference defensive player of the year, so he at least provides on that end of the floor. Um, overall, I mean, I guess they, they've been winning – pretty consistently obviously they've had their tournament flameouts like like you said um in uh the last couple of years and then obviously they made the the elite eight last year um but i think they've kind of looked at us like we've looked at some other teams so like why wouldn't we be able to beat this group they're not you know they they don't have dominant players uh, obviously i think mike benajay is pretty close to one i don't know why he doesn't really get that rep but that's fine um and they so they have two really hot you know star players that have done a lot of press and they are they're rolling so I think it's hard to not believe in your team um, when they've been playing the way Gonzaga is. Yeah, and at the same point, I think it's hard not to believe in your team when they're playing like Syracuse is too. Um, I I see Syracuse winning, but I don't think it's going to be a pretty game. I don't think it's going to look anything like the last couple games. I think we're going to get really beaten up inside, and we're going to have to find a way to balance that out uh, with some better shooting. Uh, but, you know, to me, like, I, I think the one thing the Zags get on their side in games against teams like Utah and um, maybe to a point Seton Hall and some others, um, and obviously, like, many of the Zags' past victims uh, when they were, were uh, you know, lower seed, um, is that those teams did a lot of looking past the Zags no matter how many times they made the tournament, they made the Sweet 16, whatever it is, um, Teams that have a tendency to look past the Zags because either they were they were one star player and a lot of solid contributors, and they were two star players um, and, and, and three guys that just knew you know which buttons to press at the right time, um, and you know that, that's not a that's not a bad way uh, to design a team. Gonzaga's put together a very solid program, um, you know, over the past you know nearly two decades now, um, and, and and it's admirable, especially given you know again th- there's some similarities there too. It's there's a certain amount of um, geography. There's a certain you know remote aspect to Spokane, um, similar to Syracuse. I mean, obviously the talent Syracuse has access to in the Northeast, and especially 
in New York State. Um, far outweighs what you can find in the Pacific Northwest. But uh, at the same time, like you can definitely see some similarities, and you can definitely see like Syracuse isn't built like. Um, I mean, we've been caught looking ahead, but a ten seed Syracuse is not going to get caught looking ahead of anybody. Um, which I guess is, is something that you might not be able to, to, to quantify, but it's something that definitely factors in um, that might not have against the Zags' previous um, opponents and might not if, if the Zags win against the, their next one either. Right, and, and uh, I'm really interested in, in this matchup. Uh, you kind of alluded to how you think Syracuse will win close. Um, I said earlier, you know, they're terrifying for me personally, and it's not really... The overall talent, it's those two guys, um, Wilcher and Sabonis, who uh, both seem like kind of the stereo, the prototype guys to beat the zone. Um, but I actually saw a, an interesting comparison, um, not in an ability because the, this team I'm going to bring up is way more talented and accomplished. Um, but someone said, you know, the Indiana 2013 team also had exactly who needed to beat the zone. You had Zeller, who could score from all over and was a big guy who could put it uh, door to the high post. Um, you had all others, you know, a ton of other stores, a lot of really good shooters, and they just like literally, uh, legitimately couldn't figure it out. So, I think uh, this really comes down to does Mark Few uh, have kind of the secret sauce to beat the zone? In 2010, his team was was pretty outclassed by Syracuse's team, even without Orange Onowaku. But um, their two big guys had pretty nice games, but their guards didn't do anything, uh, and they never really looked like a, a team that was going to give SU uh, any real danger. Um, so it's interesting because I think this team profiles similarly. They That team had Sacre and uh, Aaron Harris, and this team has Wilcher and Sabonis, both you know forwards all around. Guard play is a big weakness. Um, and if they can't actually attack the zone effectively, like just having those players isn't uh, enough to just beat it. So I, I think that's really where this, this matchup lies. I think it's it's effectiveness versus um just like the raw talent and stills yeah I, I totally buy that and i think you know i tried to get that point across i uh I answered a q a over at uh sb nation's gonzaga blog the slipper still fits uh and i would recommend that if anyone hasn't read it um the blog's really good too obviously they have plenty of great analysis on this week's game um but the one thing i kind of pointed out to them too was like you know what like syracuse is not I, i'm gonna say it right out like syracuse is not gonna shut down both of these players, it's not going to happen. I mean, they might be able to do one, but yeah, Sabonis and Wilcher are going to be able to, to find their points. Um, it, it's just whether or not Syracuse can do enough on, on its own end um, to, to, you know, put the basket in, in, well, put the ball in the basket, excuse me. Um, and also on top of that, I think, you know, the, the rebounding uh, edge is, is such a big, big factor. I know, uh, we were close to Middle Tennessee State, but I believe we still lost that by maybe one or two. I don't have the numbers in front of me. Um, but I know that we absolutely dominated Dayton on the boards. Uh, and I think, unfortunately, we're going to need a performance maybe closer to Dayton. Or, it, I mean, realistically, even my go, breaking even, given our, our lack of size, um, breaking even with, with a team like Gonzaga on, on rebounds might actually, especially if we have a lot more offensive boards, um, might actually be the same as as out rebounding Dayton by twenty, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I'm actually looking. We actually out rebounded Middle Tennessee by two. So oh, anytime Syracuse is close, it's a pretty it's it's kind of a win, and it all really depends on 
mostly Roberson, and then a little bit of like how long could we play Daylon and how good was he? Because he he has some you know nights where he's really active and and picks up a bunch in like a short period of time, but mostly like if, if Roberson's good as he's been the first few games, uh, Syracuse is pretty competitive on the rebound on on the boards. If he's not like Syracuse, just it's crushed. So, um, I, I mean it's it's this no surprise to anyone who's watched the team like Roberson is a huge X factor oh absolutely and the other one and it was something that they are their fans bringing up and they, they were saying um in, in our Q&A over on on Noon Magician they were saying you know if we if we shut down Benajay and 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 it's funny I, I I responded and other people did too but the the big thing was like if they shut down Benajay it still means he scored 10 points and it still means that because Benajay is a smart player, and because he understands how important he is to this team, he uh, he probably ends up figuring out ways to be productive elsewhere. I mean, we've seen it before. Benajay has had some bad shooting games this year. Um, he's also had some games where he just hasn't shot much because he's he's found ways to be more active on defense. He's found ways to pass the ball. He's found ways to to you know help on the boards. He's found ways to be a distraction so that he could get other players open, like. Benajay is a very smart basketball player, and there's a reason why. You know, Syracuse is going to miss him a lot next year, is because he 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 just understands the game. Maybe that's you know in part because he's he's played under two of the best coaches around. Maybe it's in part because he's a fifth year senior. But you know, Benajay gets it. He understands that while he's a star player, he doesn't always have to carry the team on his shoulders when he tries to, or when we the team needs him to. It's usually when we lose. Um, but when he's able to be active and involved, and if he scores 14 points, but he also, you know, dished out five assists and managed four boards and got a couple steals and maybe a timely offensive foul that he forced and, you know, a couple nice defensive stops. Like, I'd, I'd take that in, in a win any day over, over Benajay needing or, or, yeah, needing to score, you know, 24 and change. Yeah, he's he's really, really good at understanding kind of the context of what's happening in a game with his team. Um, like you said, he doesn't force things. He, he will, he'll, he'll take a command if he needs to. And there have been games where he's dropped like 30 points in the last couple of years where Benajay is like, all right, well, if this is going to happen, it's going to happen. We'll go for it. But, um, like we've had games where Malachi has been unbelievable. Like in that second half of the, of the Dayton game where he took over, um, Benajay let him kind of lead stuff, lead things in the storing. end. there've been obviously the Cooney games, the mythical Cooney games where he goes nuts and Benajay just like he's always good at, um, even if he doesn't have the ball in his hands, like if Howard's in or someone else is, is running point, he kind of runs point from like a, a game flow point of view by just making sure the right players are getting their touches. If Leiden is has a mismatch um, and he's effectively storing, like he'll have the ball more and Benajay will play more of a secondary role. But at the same time, he doesn't overly um he's not overly passive like his passiveness is effective um rather than you know not wanting the ball in a big spot and he at the same time has no problem taking you know a 25 footer in some dude's face and drilling it we've seen that how many times this year so he's definitely we've had some players in the past that have kind of shied away from the big spot uh, at times and he seems to really have the balance quite perfectly for a star player yeah, it's kind of wild, too, because I feel like, you know, a lot of, I think in, even in Syracuse history, like, everyone's kind of used to the guys that, like, either either shy away from the spotlight but, but play well or embrace the spotlight and, you know, you get what you get. I mean, you look at, 
you know, the, the double-edged sword of guys like, you know, and guys that we all enjoyed watching at the end of the day, but guys like Eric Diebendorf and Johnny Flynn and, and Andy Routens in the early part of his career when he wasn't as reliable of a three-point threat. Um, I mean, in general, like, Benajay does kind of strike a balance between a lot of these, these you know, famed Syracuse players where he understands his role. He, he will always have an impact on the game, and, and he doesn't care if it, if it means he gets the headline or it means that he's a footnote in the box score as long as he has a positive impact. And that's a player that, you know, it's, it's a player that's irreplaceable. It's also a player that, that is very hard to account for um, because you really don't know which one you're seeing. Um, and, and to be honest, the one you're seeing, if, if, if you're the opposing team, ends up being dictated by what you do, and that can be frustrating because, again, he's, he's going to find a way to beat you even if it's not in, in the way you're initially scouting him to do so. Right, and, and the one thing I do think, uh, we've seen him get a little more press this week, which has been nice, is he really deserves it. He's one of the best players left in the tournament. Um, there was a, I forget who read, wrote an article yesterday. They had basically had like the 16 best players left in the Sweet 16. I was like dreading that Benajay was going to be left off, but they actually left off Daniel House, which was weird. Uh, that was like the snub. Uh, Benajay was like eight or something, which was pretty awesome to see. Um, so he's starting to tumble on a little bit. If he has a big game, if they make the Elite Eight, um, I really think we'll, and he has a big game again. I think we'll really uh, start to see um, that storyline picked up because he's a great story, um, and it's really hard to deny he's personable. He, you know, you can't ask for much more out of a player, um, and also, you know, he'll have a little redemption chance against uh, maybe UVA, which would be cool, since you know home to home state team that he hasn't been able to beat yet. So. But, of course, that's sitting ahead of ourselves because Gonzaga is very good and deserves our respect. Oh, yeah, and don't worry. We're going to talk about a little bit more about that respect and a little bit more about who we might want to face and get ahead of ourselves. But first and foremost, a little uh, little halftime. Dan, what have you been drinking? Uh, nothing too crazy. A little more um, non-beer things uh, this week. But I did have uh, some Deuce Island, always good. Um, I had a little more of that sneak attack by 21st Amendment just as it was around. And last week I talked about it. It's not my favorite thing from them, but and not my favorite Saison, but pretty decent. Um, and I had the, uh, the Nooner's Pilner, uh, the Nooner Pilsner from Sierra Nevada. I'm not a huge Pilsner fan generally. This was, you know, pretty nice and refreshing. Not my favorite type of beer, but, um, Sierra Nevada does everything pretty well. Um, and I was just looking at a tap, uh, opening it up before we hopped on here. Did you see the, uh, the bracket thing they're doing? I did. I, uh, I was not surprised by some of the macro breweries getting a little bit further than, than the seating. I think a lot, of, a lot of that just because of you know, the tournament, especially the opening weeks, kind of breed some more binge drinking. But yeah, I mean, so far, it's, I think it was an interesting exercise. I'm surprised they didn't do it in the past, but I'm glad they're doing it now. Yeah, and it's based on check-ins. So, like, right. so it's I mean, not I don't really know. easy to game. I usually don't bother checking in if I'm drinking like a Bud Light, which is, you know, hopefully not that often. But, like, cause why, why bother? But, um, no, it is cool to see. And I think the, uh, you know, the, the beers that they have left here make sense. You know, Founders, uh, Ballast Point, obviously, Victory, Sierra Nevada. Um, they actually put more than 64. It looks like, what, they had 128 on here? Hmm. I didn't notice that. Or, that's what it looks like. Is there, no, no, never mind, 64. Just, like, it's really big bracket. Um, pretty interesting, though. Yeah. And on my end, I know since we had the podcast early last week, had plenty of drinking to do after that. Um, was at 
both Rangers games out here, so I was a little drinking at the stadiums and nearby. Uh, so I had a Noble Aleworks uh, That's Unpossible IPA. Really, really good. Arguably the best IPA I've had all year as far as like new stuff goes. Um, some other things. Had a uh, Atomic Kangaroo from the brewery. Um, it's a very subtle kind of wild ale. Um, they collaborated on it with Smog City. Uh, this is This one's about three years old. Had it when it originally came out. Still really holds up nice. Um, definitely recommended um, if it goes on sale again. Um, got to try out um, Luponic Distortion. It's an IPA from Firestone Walker. Uh, they kind of have this new um, experimental series that they've been kind of tossing around, and this was um, the first entry in that this year. Um, I really enjoyed that one. Also got to check out Modern Times Devil's Teeth. Uh, it's an old ale with coffee. Had Ballast Point's Watermelon Dorado, their double IPA, and this tasted like a straight Jolly Rancher. Um, I've been a big proponent of uh, Pineapple Sculpin and, and Grapefruit Sculpin, but I'm not as big of a fan of Watermelon, just because I just felt it was too sweet. Um, the artificial watermelons is a very strange flavor. Yeah, and like this one, I know it was like fresh watermelon added to the brewing process but like at the same time it just yeah, it, it tasted too much like Jolly Ranchers I, I just think they probably needed to add too much to make it show up yeah and a double IPA is a really hard style to do that with yeah Thomas Hooker up in Connecticut in the Hartford area um, one of their like biggest beers is their watermelon uh, watermelon ale I think mm-hmm. and it's the same with that thing it tastes like a straight up like alcoholic Jolly Rancher which it's, like, interesting for a minute, but, like, you can't drink more than half of it without being like, all right, that's enough. No. And, yeah, I wasn't a huge fan, um, and I love everything Ballast Point puts together. Um, I know as far as good watermelon beers, and I wouldn't say, like, great, just one that's passable is uh, 21st Amendment and their Heller High Watermelon. Yeah, that's actually pretty good. I enjoy that. And that's because I think it's just a good pairing of flavor and style. Um, you know, it's... You don't have to add a ton of watermelon to get that to come through in a wheat beer. So, so that's how you end up with, I think, a better marriage there versus something you know involving an IPA. You're just going to need to put an overpowering amount of, of flavor to, to really get some results. Yeah, it's a it's a tough flavor uh, I think to pull off, but um, I just think the key is like you know I'd rather have too little of it than too much. Agreed. Uh, some other things. I went down to San Diego this weekend. Stopped over at Modern Times. Uh, never a dull moment there. I, uh, they had this Infinity Beach Sour IPA, which sounds like a nightmare to some. Um, and to me, that sounds awesome because it's my two favorite styles merged together. Um, also had their Orderville IPA over there. What else did I have? I stopped over at Ballast Points um, Tasting Room over in Little Italy. Had another uh, glass of the Victory at Sea Toasted Coconut. I uh, have no regrets about that one. Still excellent. I really hope they bottle that um, because it's an excellent beer, an excellent take on an already very good beer. Um, also had, they had their homework series batch. Um, cool program where they just kind of, you know, start testing some things out. And they have, like, it's basically, it's for home brewers. They have a home brew mart, too, down in San Diego. So they have all the ingredients that come with it, and you can easily kind of you know use that as a baseline for what you want to make yourself um also swung over to Bottlecraft, uh just a beer shop and tasting room uh right across the street from there had a suburban beverage it was a uh, goza from perennial arts and ales it was very good 
um, had the pupil, which I've had before, um, IPA from Society Brewing, um, had Beechwood Brewing's uh, Kilgore Stout, and yeah, that was that was pretty much it. I know that's not a small list, but that was everything. Yeah, so hopefully many more in celebration on Friday and Sunday, because why why wouldn't we uh, drink on Easter? That I mean, Jesus probably did. So. <laughs> <laughs> if, I'm, if, I'm, if I'm betting. <laughs> I mean, if you came back from the dead, would you be drinking? I mean, probably, yeah. <laughs> Shit, man. Like, like, pop bottles. Like, I defied death. Get at me. This is why cats are constantly hammered. <laughs> All right. So uh, we alluded to a little bit before the break. Um, you know, looking ahead, there's obviously one team we want to face, and there's obviously one team we don't want to face for matchup reasons. Um, Dan, but you brought up a good point about UVA. Why would you want to face them, not for matchup reasons, but just for, for the sake of, of finally beating them? Uh, wait, did you say why would I want to be matched yes. with UVA? Um, I think the one thing with UVA, which Iowa State wouldn't present, is UVA does not play all that well from behind. Um, and luckily for them, it, they don't fall behind that often because their defense is really incredible. So like we've had a couple times in these UVA games where we've gone out to really hot starts, and then at the end of it, we're like, oh, we're up 12. I guess that's nice. But like, there are other teams where we'd be up 20. Um and it allows them to claw back in. But if you actually do like sustain a really long period of awesome play and, and get up big on them, they don't have the type of the, the system of offense or the scoring punch um, to come back from a giant deficit. They're really efficient, but they don't really play fast. Um, it's just not who they are. Yeah, and you know, you hit on, I think, the correct point there. It's the efficiency. I mean, you look back at the, the round of 32 game against Butler that they had last weekend, um, and, and most of that was caused by just, um, you know, lax defense on the part of Butler, some some real gaffes, even on the offensive end, too. I just felt like Butler Butler seemed to actively drag Virginia back to that game. And that doesn't. I don't want to discredit Malcolm Brogdon and the way he played either. I think that he played incredibly well and really on you know put that team on his back to get them first back into the game and then and then ahead of the Bulldogs for good. But um, Butler was their own undoing in many ways too. And, and, and yeah, I think that Butler's athletes might not be able to hang, which is what Virginia was doing. I think Syracuse might be able to hang a little bit better. Obviously, we lost to them earlier this year um, by double digits, but. I think the fact that we know what's coming and we know what we need to do could be a little bit of an advantage, at least over, you know, a team like Gonzaga or a team like Iowa State that we're we're really kind of seeing what they're up to for the first time. Right. I, I think on the other hand, though, I had almost always rather face the team that doesn't see the zone all the time. Um, and Virginia has had no issues with the zone, even the first time they played it. Like it was. Uh, same thing as like a lot of these Virginia games have been since we joined the ACC, and that was the NS team. Um, started off pretty hot, and then Virginia clawed its way back at half, and then they just ran us off the court in the second half. So I think even with Iowa State's offense, which is pretty dynamic, they have uh, Niang, who I think could be a, a potential really dangerous zone-busting type player. I 
I'd take my shot with Iowa State just being baffled by it. Um, and Virginia, I'm pretty confident, would not be. Yeah, I think that that is the key there. It's a novelty. At the same time, though, to draw another parallel to the 2013 team, uh, we faced Marquette in the Elite Eight that year. I was there. This is true. And uh, Marquette they had seen the zone. They they had, and they looked like they hadn't because I think they scored like 39 points. Yeah, that was. I mean, again, it was a, it was a defensive tour de force. It's something that. I think no matter what happens here or any other year, I think we'll always remember that team for just the the absolute clinic it put on in terms of, I mean, you remember every single article. It was just in awe of, like, what is this zone? How is this so much better than it even was in the regular season when it had already been pretty good? Um, and how is it shutting teams down? I don't think we're at that level this year, but, um, you know, and we talked about it in Slag. We talked about it a little bit in the article I put up uh, yesterday, and for those listening, Tuesday, um, just about you know who we'd rather face of these of these other three teams uh, remaining, and Iowa State still you know ranks a heavy number one just based on the fact that they don't have a ton of size. Um, they have they, they do rely heavily on on hitting threes, and and Jim Beheim says himself all the time like if you're going to shoot threes on us all day, then you know, we'll we'll live and die on that. That's fine, and and I'd have to agree at this point. I've been conditioned enough as a Syracuse fan to know that. You occasionally lose those games, but more, much more often than not, you, you're you're going to come away with a win because after a while, you know, even if a team starts hot, those shots rarely continue the whole time. Or even if they do, I mean, you look at uh, Wisconsin uh, several years back. I mean, those shots looked like they were going to fall the entire time we were playing against them. Um, this is before you know that team really reached its apex. Um, the shots kept falling, but we just hit just enough, and the shots started clanking off at just the right time uh, I, so yeah I, I think to me that that game more than any other is, is proof positive that um, if you're going to be a three-point shooting team and that's the only way you know how to beat the zone and I feel like that might be one of the only ways Iowa State has a real shot to beat the zone um, you're you're probably going to lose if Syracuse can shoot with any sort of effectiveness right and it's it's basically the, the like the two the two ways. You could almost say three, but one of them is kind of an offset of the other. It's the play through the high post and you kick out to shooters in the corners uh, when the zone overcommits, or you play the high-low game like UNC did when they just ran that one set over and over and over and got those easy backdoor looks. Um, and then there's the second, which is how most teams go, which is like, we're just in a fire, mad threes. And if we if you get red hot, you're going to probably beat Syracuse that way. But I think in terms like... That's kind of like the lazy way to do it, where the more like focused, the Jamie Dixon approved method, um, shout out to the, the TCU Horn Frogs, uh, who will never schedule now, as Sean said, um, and if they do, I'll freak out. Um, but the Jamie Dixon approved method is the high low, the, the high post, you know, passing big men or passing big guard, you know, play smart basketball, be patient, etc. Um, that has a much higher uh, level of you know that's going to work more often, I'd say, but not every team has the uh, the roster to do it, and not every team has the patience to do it. Yeah, I, I think that's a very good call. I think you know the Zags. For them, it's not the size that necessarily causes the advantage as much as what they can do at that size. I mean, if Sabonis shows that he has an ability to pass, and, and by all accounts, it seems like he has somewhat of a, an ability, even if not like an amazing one. If they can find ways to get Wiltshire isolated um, on the perimeter, 
and, and really play that kind of high-low a little bit more and, and do a lot of kickouts. Um, or if a random guard gets hot, as we've seen many a time in Syracuse history, um, you know, that's when that game gets scary. I think it gets scary less when you have just two big guys that you're just going to run at us because we've beaten those teams plenty. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say we're favorite against teams like that, but uh, where North Carolina, w- with its bigger players, where they have an advantage over us is just athletes. I mean, yes, we have four- and five-star guys, but UNC has five stars largely across the board and guys who are you know, future NBA lottery picks uh, at nearly every position. I mean, that's where, that's where UNC beats us is that, you know, they're not just going to run straight at us with these bigs. It's that they have so many other options, and you shut down one aspect of the game, there's another one that can meet it. Um, but, in, again, in the case of Gonzaga, and it's not to hate on Gonzaga at all, it's just to point out that, you know, offensively the guards are not really going to be doing much of anything um, unless we have a surprise performance. Uh, which I, you know, hopefully we get to avoid. Right, and and they have uh, some interesting players. McClellan is the dart I wrote before. He sits four. He was Defense Player of the Year in the in the WCC. And the regards actually have some decent size, but I think um, none of them is going to obviously be sit seven and darting Benajay. You know, he has a tendency to shoot over people. Malachi is kind of the same way at sit six. Um, and if if the darts are going, I think it's it's going to be very good for Syracuse. Um, and obviously for Zag on offense, like we said before, you can you know run your normal sets with your with your two bigs, and that's fine. But it's probably not going to be that effective. It's you know can can Sabonis go to the free throw line and um, make accurate passes and kind of be a playmaker from there? Which I I haven't watched enough of him. I know he's very good. He's a really nice you know he'll store on the block and and grab a ton of boards, but that might be a little outside of how they usually use him. And then Wiltshire, um, obviously, is a very, very good shooter. Shoots 43% from three, which is terrifying. Um, the question is, you know, how do they get him open looks? And sometimes, you know, it seems like it should be easy against his own, and then sometimes the wings play up really tight, and it's uh, incredibly difficult unless you have someone from the middle creating. So um, I think if Gonzaga uh, really game plans well and looks at what works uh, for teams like Pitt um, who don't even have the same type of forwards. Like they have ones who beat the zone really well, but I think it's just because they, it's like being into them. But um, if they look at those kind of things and they, they just totally dedicate themselves to that strategy, I think there's a very good chance they'll beat Syracuse. I think those two players are, are, you know, it split a lot of the weaknesses of the Syracuse roster, but if not, if they're just going to go, gun and play straight up i like syracuse's chances almost every time yeah you know i always wonder why people don't emulate pit more um i mean it's not as if this is like a small sample size anymore yes we won a couple games in a row um for a small portion of time but i you know obviously since jamie dixon took over and now that he's done um they're 15 and 6 against syracuse should be 16 and 5 if not for a miracle shot from tyler ennis um, yeah, to me, I just think it's, they seem like an easy team to, not, not an easy team to copy, but an easy team for, you know, teams to kind of try to glean something from. Um, I know I kind of touched on it in that piece a few weeks back, talking about, you know, the kind of time loop that we're in with, with Pitt, and now we don't ever have to be in again. Um, and, you know, maybe to a, another extent, you know, Virginia, I mean, Virginia's elevated the level of athlete in the door. Uh, Pitt has two, but... 
you know, you're not seeing just like a slew of five star guys there. So it's not a it's not necessarily a talent advantage. It's just the style of play advantage that that plenty of teams around the country, you know, can mimic. It's just weird that very few have tried to. Yeah, it it is strange because it's not a secret. Like every one of those, uh, you know, there's like a zone breakdown feature with whoever the analyst is. Like pretty much every time Syracuse plays at this point, um, so it's not like it's a, you know, it's something that that teams don't understand. I mean, it's covered pretty extensively. So it, maybe there's just maybe it's harder to train an offense to run that that type of system on a dime, um, or harder than we understand. But it really does seem like a no brainer and. I'd say like 80, 80% of teams that we play just don't even try. Yeah, which, weird. Well, whatever, don't start now. Especially you. No, please don't. It's not a good strategy. <laughs> oh, don't whatever. ever do it. It's terrible. I mean, look at Pitt. They lost in the first round. It can't work that well. No, they didn't even, they didn't even beat Syracuse in the first round. Shh. Syracuse won and Pitt lost. <laughs> so I guess in our closing moments, um, still got like seven or eight minutes, but... Want to just do a quick kind of round robin of the other matchups in the Sweet 16 because obviously you know we could face literally any of these squads um, if we win. So I mean, if not next round, potentially down the road if we start doing you know ridiculous circus type things with my sanity and mind and everything else. Um, Dan, just going down the list: Virginia, Iowa State. Who do you got and why? Um. We wrote off Iowa State before the tournament. Obviously, yes. they've gotten this far. Um, I still haven't gotten like stuck back in because they're so much fun to watch. I, I like at this point, I kind of expected myself to be back in on them, and I'm just not. Um, they're really talented, but I, I just trust Virginia a lot more. I think Virginia. Um, we talked about it back before Michigan State got embarrassed by Middle Tennessee. Like that was the team that was kind of their poison, but they had kind of been branded a little bit of a tournament, like. You know, they struggled in the tournament uh, under Bennett, which is just totally unfair. It's just they lost to Michigan State two years in a row um, as a high seed. And it was going to uh, be Mich- three. And it was going to be three. We, we laughed pretty hard about it when the seeding came out, especially because I think I tweeted it as soon as uh, Michigan State didn't show up as a one seed. I'm like, yep, Virginia's going to get them. And they did. And, of course, history happened. So congrats, Virginia. Um, I, I just trust the Cavs more. I think they're they're destined to make a run at some point on the Brogdon era. Um, he's just an unbelievable player that really goes underappreciated. Uh, and that whole team is really nice. I, I, you know, we've actually also had a lot of like Virginia love on the site today, mostly because of, uh, of the open letter. Um, a lot of Virginia fans showed up out of nowhere. Um, so I guess I'm kind of rooting for them. I also, I, they're not the prettiest team to watch, but I appreciate what they do. Uh, just as they, like any team that, that just, uh, executes their style of play to a, such perfection for three straight years now kind of deserves uh, some kind of pat on the back. So I, I just trust Virginia more. I think they're they they at, the, at this point they should be able to get to the elite eight. They they've earned it uh, as a program. So I like the Who's. That's fair. I mean they've gotten more watchable over time. I'll, I'll admit. I think they're much more watchable now than they might have been last year or the year before. Yeah, they've actually scored a lot in this tournament. I think it's more because like the defenses they played haven't been great, but. Uh, they they really they put on some points in the in the tournament, which has been nice. Oh, of course, and honestly, like if if you haven't really sat down with my uh, you know Malcolm Brogdon's game or haven't like watched a ton of him, go watch. And this is not to you, Dan. I know. Um, <laughs> go go watch the the portion of the Butler game, probably from about eight or nine minutes to go until about the three minute mark, where Brogdon takes over the game, absolutely positively takes over the game. 
just barrels into the lane, but in a very controlled way, and just slices right through that Butler defense in, in half a second. Um, it, it's, it's a feat to watch, and the fact that he just kept doing it was, was, I think, the most maddening thing, especially for someone like me that wouldn't have minded seeing some more brackets bust, especially on the other side of ours. Um, but, but it, yeah, it was, it was insane to watch, but it was also a reminder of just how good Brogdon is and, and just how much he, his career has been disserviced by a couple you know, chance meetings with, with Michigan State for, for the Hoos. Right, and he's, I mean, there's a reason why he's one of the four Naismith finalists. Like, that wasn't a gift. Like, he was very much worthy, and uh, I don't think he's going to beat out Buddy Heald, and, you know, Buddy Heald's amazing, and if you root against Buddy Heald, you don't have a soul. Um, but, <laughs> or or I mean, you went to Texas. Or you went to Texas, and, you know, do you have a soul then, either? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> it's a I think, you, I think you sold it for the Longhorn Network, and that was a, a bad trade. Um but uh, no, I, I mean I think Brogdon's awesome, um, and he's you know quiet, quiet star player, uh, and I will have no problem putting on my like ACC pride hat if Syracuse does bow out before we play Virginia. So, go go who's for now for one more round. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'd like to pick Iowa State if only because I'm projecting to if Syracuse wins, who I'd rather face. But if we're playing by the media's rules, you know, Iowa State. Beat a 13 and a 12 to get here. So they're obviously a shit team. Obviously. If we're gonna For play, sure. Yeah, if we're going to play by those rules, like, you're bad. You mean you're terrible. So um, playing by the media's rules, we're obviously picking Virginia. Um, I think in general I'm just picking Virginia. Um, I think that, you know, the Michigan State thing, I think it actually become like a mental tick. And, and if it came down to it, uh, they might have imploded, either knowing that Michigan State was there or actually seeing Michigan State across the the court from them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the fact that Michigan State's not there is is enough to power them through. Um, again, rooting against it for now, not because I hate you guys, who's actually like you guys a lot, but uh, rooting against it, if only for our own self interest. If the game times were switched, I might have a different answer. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think. If, if, I mean, uh, I will try not to do it myself, but if Iowa State put, pulls the upset, like, we're going to hear, like, oh, what if we can do it? Yep. And everyone... This is exactly what happened when we went Michigan State, uh, when Michigan State lost, and then also exactly what happened... Um, when we won last week. Yeah. <laughs> this but is what happens. It was perfect. Us. Like, yeah. it was it was perfect Syracuse. So, so SU... All right, going a little bit quicker on the other matchups. I know a lot of ACC stuff in here, so it's kind of hard to stay on track uh, when we actually know and like a lot of these teams. Um, continuing up instead, uh, Notre Dame, Wisconsin. I know Wisconsin got very lucky. Um, I'm still going with the Badgers. I think that their their poor shooting against Xavier was maybe more of a product of the Musketeers' defense. Uh, I haven't been enthralled with Notre Dame's defense consistently enough. Um, to buy into them. I also Notre Dame won on its own Hail Mary, basically, um, last week. So I'm going with Wisconsin. I'm also going with my own bracket where I picked Wisconsin to get to the Elite Eight. Uh, I did the same thing. I picked Wisconsin at the Elite Eight. Um, I had them beating West Virginia, not Notre Dame, same but that's fine. Um, and you, have, you statistically uh, are very good at identifying bad defenses because Notre Dame's is the worst left in the field with a bullet. Um, ah. 
Duke, Duke, uh, according to Tempom, is at 109 in the country, uh, and they're 19th overall in Tempom, but 109 in defense. Notre Dame is at 172 in oh, defense, and Tempom overall has them as the worst team left in the field. So uh, shout out to Tempom. Syracuse is only third worst, ahead of Wisconsin and Notre Dame. Um, so I will also take the Badgers. I think they are a little more well-rounded. I think there's – at some point, Nigel Hayes has to learn how to play basketball again. He's had an awful <laughs> tournament. And they keep on winning, and he's their best player. So I think he will reemerge at some point here. Hap has been kind of a revelation for them in this whole like resurgence that Wisconsin's had. Uh, Bronson Tainage obviously is nasty and uh, is just a big shot maker. I mean, did you see that um, shot chart that came, that Vice Sports put out today? Yes, like like a different team. Like, a different team. Other, like they like flipped the switch. Like, all right, we're gonna be good again. And, really good. Yeah, <laughs> holy shit! Yeah, um, and the Tainage shot was unbelievable. Um, I just trust was Tom. Again, this is like a you know probably a totally unfair uh, like feel thing. I just I trust Wisconsin more. I know Notre Dame made a nice run last year, but that team had some you know Jerry and Rant was on that team. That team was a little more well rounded, I think. And Notre Dame just doesn't play defense. Like they haven't played defense all year. We've seen what happens when it gets the worst of them uh, up close to Syracuse. Absolutely dominated them this year in a game where they played no defense. So. Uh, I'm going to take the, the, the Badgers. I think Notre Dame could like come out on fire and just blow them out. But, um, yeah, but I think then they're going to get like... lit up in the Elite Eight if they do that. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I like the Badgers here. Fair enough. Um, all right. So, what's more cream? The game that we play every week. <laughs> America's, <laughs> America's favorite. Favorite uh, game show. Favorite game show. Cream stars and celebrities. Do they know something? But, uh, all right, looking at this. Um, was that a BoJack Horseman reference? It was a BoJack Horseman <laughs> reference. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, the North Carolina and Indiana. What's more, Korean? Indiana getting destroyed by North Carolina in this game, or Indiana winning by 15 and then losing to Wisconsin? Ooh. I don't know. That's tough. I think I'm going to... Oh, I'm going to go with Indiana beating North Carolina because this is the something something anniversary of basically I think it was in this played in the same place as Indiana beating North Carolina in '84 in uh, the Michael Jordan's last year I believe mm. uh, and and Dan Dockage of all people like shut him down on defense which doesn't make any sense yeah. um, so uh, I'm sure Indiana has a strappy white guy who can like uh, box out Bryce Johnson all game. Um, probably not, but we'll see. Uh, so I think Indiana beating UNC and then losing by like 20 to Wisconsin would be more green, but I don't think they will. I like Indiana. Like we've talked about this, like begrudgingly, Indiana's really talented. Um, they, you know, they beat Kentucky, which is uh, no small feat. Um, a lot of really good athletes. Uh, this isn't even like, I, I don't even think it'd be that crazy to pick Indiana. I'm going to go with UNC. They're playing really well. I think their size will still give Indiana problems, um, even if Indiana, you know, Yogi Ferrell has some senior year magic stuff going on right now. Um, but I think this one actually should be a lot of fun, all, all joking aside. I, I don't think we'll get a creaming. I think UNC will beat, a, you know, a very talented UNC team will beat Indiana, but it should be actually a pretty good game. No, I concur. I think that's the, this is the marquee game of, of the, uh, the Sweet 16 matchups, and that's fine. You know, it's Blue Bloods. There's, there's always a lot. On the line there, there's always a lot of fun at stake, and I'll, I'll take it. Uh, quick take, without any reasoning at all, North Carolina or Wisconsin, Dan, I'm picking North Carolina. 
yeah, I just think North Carolina's better. I had Kentucky winning this region. Obviously, that's gone. So I think UNC is just really talented. I think they they do always run the risk of going super cold and just not hitting any jump shots. Um, but I think if any team can survive that, it's them just because they have Bryce, they have Kennedy Meeks, they have Isaiah Hicks. They have a lot of options down low, and no other team has that number of them. So I just think they're very talented. Uh, and, yeah, I None of these teams would really surprise me. Maybe Notre Dame a little bit, just because their defense is so. so uh, I think either one of the of the Indiana Notre Dame or Indiana North Carolina teams will probably win that uh, win that region. Fair enough. Moving over to the other side, Kansas and Maryland. I don't buy Maryland at all. They wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for the Cal injury before the first round game. Um, I'm going with Kansas because, despite my belief in North Carolina, they are the team I picked to win, after all. I, uh, I still think Kansas might have the best top-to-bottom talent um, in the entire tournament, and, and I'm very much buying the Jayhawks to uh, wipe the floor with Maryland. Yeah, Maryland just, like, I think if Maryland had really showed something the last couple games, maybe this would be closer, maybe we could buy into Maryland kind of bouncing back on the right time. But they looked very end against South Dakota State. They didn't look great against Hawaii. Like they won both those teams. wasn't like super close down the stretch. But um, Kansas is just rolling. They look really good. Um, they probably I agree. They probably do have the most talent, especially in a in a team that's dom- dominated by the backcourt. Um, UNC has the most frontcourt talent, but Kansas has three guards that are just really hard to deal with. Uh, especially Devontae Graham is coming along in a big way. Um, so I really like. Uh, I like them to win this one pretty comfortably. And I think at this point, they're the runaway favorite in the tournament. Obviously, anything can happen from here, but it's really hard to uh, to believe that, that Kansas won't uh, have a, at least a really good shot at winning this whole thing. I would agree. And moving to the other side of their bracket, Miami and Villanova. Villanova, if you would face Temple, I don't know if you would have made it out, but you destroyed Iowa in a way that I wasn't sure anyone could. Um, that's less a commentary on Iowa being good, more a commentary on just Villanova being able to just utterly dominate that team in a way you rarely see in the tournament um, in a second-round game. Um, I think Nova has what it takes to beat Miami. I just think Miami it can get streaky from the field. They got a little cold for a bit against Wichita State, and you saw things get a little shaky. The one plus for Miami, though, it, it is the, the veteran leadership they have there. Um, and the fact that these guys have, have been through the paces, they understand what they need to do, um, and they play decent enough defense. Um, I like Villanova, and by like, I mean I'm, I think they're going to win. I hate Villanova in principle. Um, but yeah, it sets up a, which should be a very entertaining, in my bracket at least, uh, Kansas-Villanova uh, lead eight. Yeah, I don't, I don't love picking Villanova here just because I'm still kind of starred by the last couple of years of watching Villanova play in the tournament. But, man, they're playing, like, awesome ball uh, so far in this thing. Miami's played pretty well, too. The holding off Wichita State was really impressive considering what that comeback looked like for a minute. No um, small feat, especially given the tournament experience on that team. No, and Wichita's just really good. Um, and and they made a big run in Miami after Miami came out. Like, you know, their heads were on fire. Uh, this is probably the toughest game of this whole round, I think. Um I think Miami has a nice size advantage. Jatiri's obviously really awesome. Angel Rodriguez in the backcourt's playing really great um, after, you know, he can be streaky sometimes. I think Nova, you could argue they've been playing the best basketball of this whole tournament. Um, 
I'm just deciding this now. I'm going to take Miami. Uh, yeah. Just, yeah, I just feel like they'll rip this one out. Um, and this is no knock on Villanova. They could easily win this one. Um, I just like how Miami's backcourt's playing. I think they'll have the advantage in the front court. Um, and Laranaga, I think, is an awesome coach. Um, but this one, like, I think this is a legit coin flip. So I could go either way. By, by Thursday, I might totally change my mind. Yeah, I, I, uh, I think I'm with you on that. Uh, I picked Miami in my bracket. I picked Villanova here. I would obviously prefer Miami in general. Um, but into the next matchup, whether it's Kansas against Villanova or Kansas-Miami, quick take. I'm taking Kansas for all the aforementioned reasons of talent, just pure domination, and the fact that this team seems like they're on a collision course with somebody good in the Final Four. Yeah, I I would love it for it to be a 2003 rematch between Kansas and the, uh, you know, doesn't deserve to be in the national championship game, Syracuse Orange. I, I would like anyone but Kansas to be on the other side of that if Syracuse were to get there. <laughs> well, obviously, yeah, I would love to. I would love to play uh, pretty much anyone else, but I think getting in the national championship would be absurd, and yeah, the Ocean rematch then, would be man. crazy. I would, yeah, let's go Syracuse, <laughs> Maryland. That's uh, that'd be great. Um, the replacement yeah, cup. <laughs> the the conference realignment uh, sponsored by the dude from West Virginia. Um, no, I, I totally agree on Kansas. So I they have to be the favorite to win the whole thing from here on out. So I will take them pretty comfortably over either one of Miami or Villanova. Buy it, and then the last two games. Oregon and Duke. Um, St. Joe's really pushed Oregon, and I really thought that you know Oregon was gonna was gonna lose that game. But St. Joe's kind of unraveled themselves. Um, Oregon obviously had some timely shooting toward the end, but um, I just don't know if Duke can keep up for the full forty. I mean, maybe the week off re-energizes them and gets them through um, to the Elite Eight. I mean, it's quite possible. Um, obviously, Duke is very talented. Just from a one through five standpoint. And again, you and I said it, you know, weeks ago when we started previewing the tournament it was just, you know, can they, can they stay healthy enough and can they stay uh, fresh enough? I think they might be able to against Oregon. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go with the Blue Devils. Um, and then on the other side, um, I'm going to go with Oklahoma because, you know, Buddy Hield is Buddy Hield. And you saw what Oklahoma was able to do against BCU early in the game last week uh, before he really even caught fire. Um, and then obviously what he did in, in the second half. Um, A&M needed a miracle, literally, uh, to get through to this round. Uh, after playing so well against Green Bay, I'm very surprised at, at how poor, poor they looked against Northern Iowa. Um, I think A&M's uh, trip has run out. So I'm going Duke and Oklahoma um, in the Elite Eight uh, with Oklahoma... Uh, just simply outlasting them um, in, a, in a very kind of fast-paced war of attrition uh, comes Sunday, or is it Saturday? I forgot what day they're playing. <laughs> um, I think it'll be Saturday. Um, so I'm going to take Oregon. I think uh, Duke's lack of depth might come to roost here. Um, Coach Tay actually talked about it today. He said Oregon. He almost said a quote that almost reminds me of the 2010 Syracuse team. They basically have seven starters. Um, and they do. They, they have eight guys that play uh, over – actually, no, it's seven. Seven guys who play over 20 minutes. Very balanced across the board. Um, I don't think Dylan Brooks is a Wes Johnson, but he's a very good player. Uh, super impressive down the stretch in St. Joe's. Um, so I think they'll be really close. When I think Duke has the, the better top-end talent, 
But I think Oregon might be able to just throw too many bodies and rotate, you know, too much for Duke to really keep up. And and I just I'm not buying this two team. I, I think Grayson Allen's awesome. I think Plumlee's tumbled along really impressively. Ingram's great. Uh, but I don't know a, a team with that little depth. It really makes it hard for me to believe in them uh, really deep in March. So I think uh, I'll take Oregon in a close one. Um, and then, like you, I, I just think Buddy Heald's playing too good right now. He looked like a man possessed in the second half uh, of that last round game. Um, Texas A&M I like, but, I mean, the, the comeback at the end of Northern Iowa, like, I watched it, and I, I don't think I really processed how ridiculous it was until I like went and watched, just watched like a replay of it. Because I was just like, kind of like, they just keep on storing. It just was so crazy. Um, but I just think Buddy Heald is proving why he's been, you know, he was basically player of the year uh, favorite from wire to wire, except for like a little bit of a Denzel Valentine interjection towards the end of the regular season. Obviously, I think Valentine probably isn't going to win that now. Uh, assuming, um, I don't know if you'd know, voting, I think, is not up, right? Voting's still going? Uh, yeah, because, uh, well, diving into my work. Uh, AT&T used to sponsor the Naismith Trophy, um, so I usually knew how the voting was going. Uh, now I don't. I'm pretty sure that that wraps up. I think it's before the, the final four. It's before the final four, but yeah, I think it's before the final four, and like I think it wraps up maybe that Friday um, around midnight. I know Oscar Robertson votes were already due um, because I put mine in. So, I, yeah, I think Oscar Robertson votes got were wrapped up before the tournament started. Okay, so when, when Trevor Trinity gets a vote, you all know who it was. Definitely not um, vote for Trevor Trinity. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think Heald has, has the Naismith and probably the Robertson uh, locked up, especially because Valentine's out and Eulis is out, unless Brogdon decides to store 70 this weekend. Um, but he's just, he's awesome. He's fun to watch. He seems like a great like player to root for. Um, his interviews are amazing. Uh, so, and you know, there just isn't a better pure store in college basketball. So I think they'll, they'll outdo A&M. And then, uh, I had Oklahoma winning that region from the start. And it's one of the few things I can still, uh, pencil in here as we go forward to the left side of my brackets in decent shape. The right side is a uh, tire fire. So knock on wood. I can actually, I can still hang my hat on three out of four. Yeah, no, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's cause you pick Michigan state. Yeah. I mean, I'm a smart person. Me and forty-one percent of uh, the world, I think. That, that's that's almost the exact reason why I did not pick Michigan State. Yeah, see, I always tell tell myself I'm going to pick like strategically like that, and then at the end I'm like, I just like this bracket, and this is what I'm going to do, and then I do that. Uh, so maybe next year I'll absolutely like strategically fill out. That's fair. I think my from when I was younger and I was rooting for Syracuse and North Carolina, I think my my old heels homerism shows up sometimes when I fill out these brackets. Because anytime UNC is a one seed, I usually just pick them to win the whole thing. It's probably bad. Yeah, especially with, you know, I, I don't want to, like, do the whole, like, Roy Williams is a bad coach thing, but I, I, except from, like, 09. 09, I, I picked them, and I just ran away with it. I think I won my whole bracket that year, and that wasn't exactly, like, the hardest pick of the world, but I, I felt pretty good about that one. Yeah. I feel pretty good about this one, but obviously there's plenty more to happen. Um, I think they're in a tough bracket. Um, so, yeah, we'll see. I think that... People have probably listened to us enough, Dan, since we're, we're, we're nearing the hour and 15 mark. Oh, that's too much of us. <laughs> that's way too much of us. Um, all right, so that was Dan. I'm John. Uh, Dan, thanks, as always, for joining. 
Yes, we will. I look forward to our uh, final four preview next week. Yes, hopefully we uh, we join you all next week celebrating a uh, a final four berth. And if not, we'll uh, I think we'll still manage to be fairly positive and optimistic unless some really stupid officiating error happens at the end of this game. Please no. Yes, no. Please no. All right. Uh, so, so again, that was Dan. I'm John. Uh, you've been listening to Troy Noons, an absolute podcast. Uh, we will see you next week. Go Orange. Go Orange. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. With 25% off all new and up to 70% off previously leased furnishings, do you really need a better reason to party? We don't think so. Come visit our new Court Furniture Clearance Center with more than 9,000 square feet of new and previously leased furniture and decor for your home and office. Sofas from $199.99, bedroom sets from $399.99, dining sets from $299.99, and more. Free food, prizes, and fun all weekend long at our Chantilly Court Furniture Clearance Center at 13946 Lee Jackson Memorial Highway or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com.